Hi. I'd like to present an idea. To nullify discomfort is to nullify your very ability to endure emotion. It is to nullify and erode both ends of life's spectrum of experience. I'd argue that the most intense of emotions are inherently taxing. Not only do stress and frustration require effort to contain, but even moments of great joy can often be difficult to bear. They too are strenuous and demand enduring. I'd argue that both difficulty and joy are conditions of restlessness that are an integral part of the human condition. To subdue one is to subdue the other, the subduing of life itself. You see, combat can be spent unknowingly. If you're stuck, depleted, or frustrated, despite your best efforts, it may be because you're fighting the wrong guy. I was. In what I call cycles of attrition, I would waver between periods of intense energy and exhausted apathy. I tried every trick in the book to get inspired, but somehow none of it ever came to fruition. I wasn't objectively better at the end of the day. If anything, these repeated efforts eroded my sense of aspiration. What was the point of riding the waves of ambition only to crash onto the shores of failure? And there was nothing for me, nothing there, nothing to hold on to, except misery and self-hatred, of course. But you can't even hold on to that. At this point, you're too fragile, too empty. In this state, motivation is altogether blunted and accessible. And you don't know what to expect from a different course of action. You can't even understand it or distinguish what the alternative is. I can tell you of it, that it is a wild beast, so ferociously eager to live. But it is inaccessible to you now. As I've said before, I believe that the only way you can reach this condition in the first place is if you have already a tremendous deep-seated desire burning within you. This passion leaves you with one of two certain outcomes. It will either bolster your efforts or consume you entirely. Achieve or desperately suppress. Eventually, I learned that the difference between these two outcomes is whether or not you're able to regularly confront your passion, to mold it and learn to control it in its own irrational reality, to leave it ungratified by cheap stimuli and let it rise and surge, to confront your frustrations rather than suppress them, to mold them, to discover yourself. As I pursued clarity, as I discovered myself, I discovered someone already driven. My God, it occurred to me. There was no need to attain spirit, only unleash it. For my entire life, I've thought of motivation as the short-lasting bursts of energy one might get every so often. In regards to my ambitions, I thought it was impossible to consistently feel like it. But in reality, passion was an innate sense of drive that could consistently be called upon and lived by through the confronting, manipulating, and thriving off of stress. See, stress is inherently there, so it can be used to your advantage. This is the purpose of the stress response. When your brain detects a stressful situation, a series of interactions between your endocrine glands in the brain and kidneys, called the HPA axis, cause the release of the cortisol, adrenaline, and norepinephrine hormones, among others, into your body in order to prime you 
for immediate action. This reaction is meant to benefit you by elevating your heart rate and giving you a burst of focus and energy. It even boosts your immune system so that you can better address the situation at hand. But we don't see it that way, do we? The problem, as I mentioned earlier, is that we use thought suppression rather than cognitive reappraisal to deal with our feeling that way. It doesn't resolve anything, only postpones and makes matters worse. You get used to distracting yourself, cheating yourself. You get used to just not think about it. By not addressing the issue which created the stress in the first place, you're likely only to increase the frequency of such detested stress in your life and far outside your ability to withstand. The effects of chronic stress can be so devastating, in fact, that not only can it lead to significant changes in the size of your brain, further reducing your ability to deal with stress, it can even cause epigenetic changes, prioritizing the expression of some genes over others, which have been further shown to transfer from parent to offspring for many generations thereafter. Now, ready for the kicker? Stress kills, but only if you think it does. Perception changes everything. Test subjects who were encouraged to reappraise stress arousal as functional and adaptive exhibited increased perceptions of their available resources, improved cardiovascular functioning, and less threat-related attentional bias. Their heart was still racing, but it was perceived as the priming of their senses and was determined physiologically to be within the condition of healthy cardiovascular performance. These measurements, in fact, were incredibly similar to our physiological reactions during moments of joy and courage. In the words of Nelson Mandela, I learned that courage was not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. Or by the account of GSP, arguably the greatest mixed martial artist of all time, the thing I had to learn, and I keep learning this lesson in my life every day, is how to take fear's power and use it to become better. This is the testimony of those who have learned to harness their passion, to relish in the challenge it offers. Famously, the U.S. Navy SEAL motto is, the only easy day was yesterday. And Carl Jung, the 20th century psychotherapist and founder of analytical psychology, has said, the most intense conflicts, if overcome, leave behind a sense of security and calm that is not easily disturbed. It is just these intense conflicts and their conflagration, which are needed to produce valuable and lasting results. And that is the idea I bring forth to you today, that the most intense of emotions are inherently taxing. Is the fear of cliff diving not a thrill? Is the long-awaited reuniting with a loved one not heart-wrenching? I argue that to use comfort, to nullify your experience when you are distraught, is to nullify your capacity to experience in the first place. Still, it's worth noting here that such tales of bliss should never be taken at face value. There exists a tremendous incentive to prophesize of stupendous enlightenment where there is none. Just continue on for a little while longer and eventually you'll realize you were right all along. You're right. Much like the account of alien abductees or subjects of hypnosis, there is good reason to approach with skepticism and assume that these uncanny feats are nothing but lies that an overly receptive mind tells itself. Wanting to believe can at times lead us to believe, and that is no small danger. Yet, in his book, Flow, The Psychology 
of optimal experience. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi compiles four decades of research alongside thousands of interviews conducted all over the world to try and understand the nature of what he calls optimal experience. He discovered astounding similarities between people's description of their greatest moments of joy all across the globe, and that these moments came as a result of unusual investments of attention and effort. Therefore, by compromising our ability to be attentive through cheap indulgence, it is not overtly clear that we compromise our ability to enjoy life itself? Happiness is not achieved through the pursuit of that which makes us feel comfortable, desensitized, or overly stimulated. It ensues within a framework of fulfillment which can be achieved through the act of embracing personal responsibility for that which is within our control in a world that can often seem too powerful to give us a say. This is what we often search for when we say that we are looking for meaning in life. It is the genuine, natural thrill of standing tall in the face of life's difficulty, if only for the sake of so significant a purpose that we've deemed hardship to be worthwhile. Optimal experience is not comfortable. It requires difficulty matched by effort and attention. And that's enjoyable, perhaps not in a prefabricated, short-term, snip-snap, artificially stimulating sort of way, but rather an experience of true relishment, satisfaction, and outcry, serenity. People feel most alive and fulfilled when they express who they truly are. And that is a pursuit that not only requires effort, but is unpredictable. Much like artists who start out with the least preconceived notion of how their work would turn out end up being the most creative, regardless of how you're feeling right now, regardless of your expectation, this effort is likely to give rise to a form of living that is entirely different, uniquely complex, and wholly spectacular. You'll notice that there will come a difference between a task that requires effort and a task that is hard. So long as you are capable of something, you can simply do it, and your mind doesn't get in the way. Your focus is maintained for long periods, and you'll be able to completely tune out your surroundings through sheer willpower. Your dreams become more fluid, lucid, and contain clear ideas. You begin to recognize your shortcomings, recognize your ambitions, and weave them together into a beautiful fabric. To pursue clarity is to pursue the precise faculties elemental to optimal experience, effort, and attention. Regardless of its nature, with this exertion at the heart of it, it will result in a struggle worthwhile. And just in case you're concerned with the aforementioned detrimental effects that chronic stress may have already had on the size of your brain, can you guess what the best proven methods are to revert such an impact? exercise, and meditation. Sounds a lot like a manual reset, doesn't it? My theory is that this happens unnaturally, for lack of a better word. I think that it is an experience exclusive to mankind, exclusive to consciousness. To overcome your urges, to hold your ground as they wash over you, seems like an achievement of cognition exclusive to those who are not tied down by their instinct. The reason I say this is because you first start to notice it in the subtleties, as though the joy is sourced in your awareness. 
it may simply be that attentiveness is improved, thus enhancing all other modes of joy. But perhaps it is that in the ability to notice life, to be aware of it, despite the blindness ushered in by our inner caveman, our cavewoman, lies great fulfillment. I'm not sure, but that is certainly how it feels. Unnatural. In his book, Ultra Marathon Man, Dean Karnazes writes, somewhere along the line, we seem to have confused comfort with happiness. Dostoevsky had it right. Suffering is the sole origin of consciousness. Never are my senses more engaged than when the pain sets in. There is a magic in misery. Just ask any runner. Relishing in a whiff of an intense memory, the welling of empathy at the sound of an outcry, blood boiling at the sight of a fine work of art. It's the opposite of desensitization. It is controlled and clear-minded sensitization. It is the synthesis of intellect and emotion at work. It is optimal experience, relaxed, firm, and arduous composure, calm vigor, Caravaggio's Judith, as she beheads Holofernes. In any case, life becomes self-enforcing. If not treasured before, it certainly will be past this point. The suffering and difficulty equate to meaning and challenge. Depression and nihilism make way to fulfillment and confidence. Though a daily MR still remains a great challenge for a long while, for once, you'll finally be able to relish in its usefulness for the duration of its practice. This capacity to endure, I believe, is the ultimate expression of control in your life. Though still far outside your reach, any circumstance that can be at your discretion becomes so. Uncertainty is no longer tyrant. It is only a consideration. As you progress, this sense of control becomes more and more rattling. As a result of your increased composure and ability to tolerate stress, you'll discover in the endurance of pain an unveiling of sensations so raw and sharp they are almost maddening in effect. You'll meet new challenges and work to overcome them. Your skill will improve as you're confronted with greater challenges. While the balance between your skills and effort remains, their capacity enlarges and your experience along with it. It is on the absolute brink of fatigue, through sheer force of will and comfortless calm, that the subtleties become vivid and piercing. Your ability to perceive is no longer eroded by excessive stimuli. The more time you spend in this state, the greater your ability to sustain it becomes. As you push yourself further toward the precipice of focused depletion, these senses stack and multiply, reaching ecstasy. And that's where the word ecstasy comes from, by the way. The original Greek ecstasis describes the perception of standing outside oneself. This is the ultimate warrior quality. It is why militant critical skill operators are known less for their physical abilities and more for their functional capability during total loss. Which doesn't sound like much fun, right? But you start craving this daily hardship, this challenge quota. You become obsessed with it, obsessed with life, true to your ostensibly passionate nature. Lacking ease does not become opposed to lacking enjoyment. 
does not become opposed to lacking fulfillment. It does not become opposed to lacking pleasure or satisfaction. On the contrary, you'll likely experience these far more frequently and vividly. It's a state which I believe to be the synergetic epitome between our primitive needs and our cognitive reassessment of such experiences. Wouldn't it be wonderful if one day all your efforts had culminated into one singular event? Comfort is a man-made construct that only describes our perception of our position relative to our expectation of what should be. In a life pursued outside an expectation of ease, the most subtle grace suddenly becomes rapture and the most deeply masked want, a fervent will. Thank you for listening.